you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. When I started this podcast, I decided I wasn't going to cover Jack the Ripper. I'd always been interested in the case, and I feel that I'm fairly well versed in it, but Overall, I just really don't think I'd have much to add to the conversation that hasn't been said 500 times before. And after all, that tale doesn't really fit with the less documented stories I wanted to cover. That said, I'll gladly do things that are Ripper adjacent, people and murder cases that come up in Ripper media sources quite a bit, but are rarely discussed in depth. For example, a bit ago I did an episode on quote-unquote Dr. Francis Tumblety, one of those people whose name comes up as a suspect fairly regularly, but whose own criminal career isn't really all that well known. And this is one of those episodes as well. I'm Andrew Gable, and this is episode 83, The Periphery of the Canon. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. First, I think I need to apologize. I usually take off for a few weeks around Christmas, and when I took my December break this year, for whatever reason, it took me forever to get back into working on this. I intended to get back to it around New Year's, and then before I knew it, a month had passed, and it still wasn't done. So, oh well, here it is. The body count usually attributed to Jack the Ripper stands at five women killed between August 31st and November 9th, 1888. Polly Nichols, Ann Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Kelly. But controversy has raged since the time that the crimes took place as to how many victims the killer actually had. Sometimes, it's cited up to as many as 20. Several murders that were felt to be somewhat similar to Jack's occurred after the conclusion of the so-called canonical murders, and it seems that at least some of the contemporary investigators wrote these off as Jack's work. In the years since, most of these controversial cases, which included the murders of Alice McKenzie and Francis Coles, among others, have been more or less discarded by most as copycats. Likewise, there were a handful of crimes taking place before the canonical five as well, reaching back into 1887. These include Emma Smith and Martha Tabram, among others. Of these, Martha Tabram was possibly a victim of the same killer, in my opinion. And even the canonical murders are not without controversy, with discussion as to whether Stride and Kelly were, indeed, murdered by the same individual or not. Throughout this several-year period, 
There were also any number of other crimes appearing in the press, which were described as being like Jack's, and quite often were outright said to be crimes committed by the same person after they left London behind. Some of these peripheral cases, such as Carrie Brown, also known as Old Shakespeare, killed in New York in 1891, and the Thames Torso murders of the 1870s and 1880s, will probably be dealt with in their own episodes. The ones that will be discussed here are the British murder of Jane Beadmore in northeast England near Newcastle in 1888, a series of killings in Jamaica in 1888 and 1889, another series in Managua, Nicaragua, likewise in 1889, and connected in the press to the Jamaican crimes, murders in Oostburg in the Netherlands in 1893, and one in Munion Samaro, Spain in 1895. All are mentioned in the press of the day, often just in passing, and as such are usually mysterious to most researchers, except for the Beadmore murder, which was quite well known at the time. Burtley was a small village on the outskirts of Gateshead in northern England, in the county of Tyne and Weir. At around 7.20 a.m. on the morning of September 23, 1888, an engineer named John Fish, employed in the mining village of Aiton Banks, was on his way to work. He was walking northward, following the Alston Pelaw Wagonway, a trackway connecting a number of coal pits and mines in the area along which coal wagons were hauled. In the area of the Mount Moore Colliery, and just north of the Vale Pit Cottages, he saw lying in a ditch alongside the tracks, the body of a young woman. After checking the young woman for signs of life and finding none, he ran to the nearest house and contacted Constable John Dodds. Dodds and Fish went back to the ditch and examined the scene. By way of a coincidence, Dodds immediately recognized the young woman as Jane Beadmore, who lived with her mother and stepfather in the White House cottage nearby. He noted three wounds in the body, she had been stabbed in both the face and neck, and she had also been ripped open and partially disemboweled in the manner of the women being killed in the British capital that autumn. After a quick survey of the crime scene, Constable Dodds notified his superior, a Sergeant Harrison, and Dr. Walter Galloway. Both of these men, as well as Superintendent John Harrison of the Gateshead Division Police, arrived on scene and began to piece together what had happened. They also felt strongly enough about similarities to Jack the Ripper that they sent word to Scotland Yard, who on September 24th dispatched Inspector Thomas Roots and Dr. George Bagster Phillips, who had just recently done the post-mortem on Annie Chapman and would go on to be the coroner in the other three murders as well. As to whether it was Jack's work, when they arrived on the 25th and examined the body, Dr. Phillips stated that he believed it was not. Regardless of one's opinion on the degree of anatomical skill in the case of Jack, Dr. Phillips stated that the slash in Jane Beadmore's stomach was a clumsy piece of butchery, and in his opinion had been performed by someone else. Inspector Roots agreed. It seems some saw the involvement of Scotland Yard as an admission that the murder had been committed by the Ripper, however. Jane Beadmore was 27 years old at the time of her death. As stated above, she lived with her mother and stepfather, and was most often referred to as Jane Savage, her stepfather's last name. She seemed to have had a heart condition of some sort for which she took medication. She had gone into Gateshead on September 22nd to buy some of her medicine. Around 7 o'clock that evening, she had again departed, 
stopping at the Moore Inn to buy some toffee, which she intended to take with her foul-tasting medicine, then at the home of Dorothy Knoll. It was also determined that she had been seen by Newark Forster and Henry Brown, walking, alone they thought, on the Black Road at around 8 p.m. Another traveler, a miner named James Gilmore, believed he saw Jane Beadmore in the company of a man probably about 5'9 in height, nearly an hour after Forster and Brown saw her. The couple was on the Black Road, walking in the direction of the Alston Pilaw tracks. This was apparently only a few minutes before her death. But while most of the public remained convinced that London's most notorious resident had moved to northern England, the police began to develop their main suspect in the case after speaking to a friend of the dead girls, named Isabella McGuinness. McGuinness said she and Jane Beadmore were walking in Bertley when they met William Waddell. Jane, who had been seeing Waddell, told McGuinness that she wanted nothing more to do with him as she had met someone nicer. William Waddell was a 22-year-old farmhand from Aiton Banks. He had been employed by John Hall, a local landowner who happened to be the landlord of White House Cottage, where Jane Beadmore and her parents lived. Waddell was a moody sort, and Hall said he was an unremarkable employee. Dorothy Newell said that while Jane was visiting her, William Waddell came up and sat down nearby, looking fairly depressed as usual. Jane left Knowles at around 8 p.m., and shortly after she did so, William Waddell followed. It is likely that statement which caused the police to begin pursuing William Waddell as a witness. However, when they arrived at Waddell's address, a boarding house run by a Miss McCormick, she told him that he hadn't been at the house since the night before Jane's body was found, and he moved from the witness to the suspect category. These suspicions were strengthened when Mrs. McCormick told police that the last she had seen him, he was drunk, which was unusual for him. That was about an hour before Knowles said Waddell and Beadmore met at the farm. Since he had failed to turn up at Miss McCormick's, William Waddell had been traveling northward toward the Scottish border. George Taylor of Corbridge, on the outskirts of Hexham, saw a man he identified as Waddell there around 7 a.m., at the same time John Fish was finding Jane Beadmore's body. When he was finally captured on October 1st, he in fact had made it over the border to the village of Yethom. He had been confronted by a Yethom resident who recognized him as a suspected killer. Although he said his name was William Laws, and he was from the town of Coldstream, William Stenhouse, the resident who had recognized him, wasn't fooled. Stenhouse managed to detain Waddell long enough for him to be apprehended by the police. Waddell replied that he did not know a Jane Beadmore when questioned about it. But remembering the other names she often went by, the police asked about a Jane Savage, and then he answered in the affirmative. That is my wife, he said. I left her in Bertley on Saturday. When Constable John Thompson asked if she was alive when he left her, he replied, calmly, no, dead. Superintendent Harrison came to Yethelm to retrieve Waddell and bring him back to Gateshead. Once they had returned to England, William Waddell was formally charged with killing and slaying Jane Beadmore between the night of the 22nd and the morning of the 23rd September on the wagon way at Bertley Fell by stabbing her in the neck and abdomen. He was arraigned that afternoon. 
The Durham Chronicle and County Gazette said of his appearance in court, Sergeant Hutchinson of Bertley brought in the prisoner Waddell and conducted him to the dock. His appearance was most painful to witness. Sergeant Hutchinson had practically to carry him along to the prisoner's bar, and when stationed there, he appeared to be in a state of collapse. His trembling limbs seemed scarcely able to support their weight. His shoulders stooped forward to an extent that made him look like a small instead of a moderately tall man, and his chin was sunk onto his chest. The prisoner was easily recognizable from the police description, particularly the second one that was issued. His face, when once seen, will always be remembered, though the only striking feature about it is the peculiarity of the eyes, except that when he talks, the absence of his front teeth must be noticed. He wore the clothes in which he was captured. His expression of face is certainly not unprepossessing, though when in the dock, he never once looked up, and his eyes never rested for more than a few moments on the same object. He persistently kept his head down. During the whole of the proceedings, which only lasted a few minutes, the prisoner rubbed together the knuckles of his closed hands, imparting to them a sort of circular motion. And this, and the fact that he breathed heavily now and then, were the only signs of animation that he manifested. It was certainly impossible to view him without feeling pity for the miserable state to which he had fallen. In the end, William Waddell had confessed freely to the crime, and traces of blood were found on his clothing, which he had apparently attempted to wash away. Of his motives, he could only say, I must have been out of my mind, as I would not strike at a woman, much less do a thing like this, when I was in my right mind. He could attribute the murder only to a combination of drunkenness and having read accounts of the Whitechapel murders. William Waddell was executed in Durham on December 19, 1888. On January 23, 1889, the following story appeared in the New York Sun. The crews of the various steamers plying between this city and Kingston, Jamaica, are telling fearful stories of crimes committed in Spanish Town, a village near Kingston. The first, is a, the first of a series of diabolical and mysterious murders took place, so the sailors say, November 28, 1888, in St. Catherine's Parish, a few miles distant from Spanish Town. The victim was a negress of the lowest and most vicious class, whose name has never been discovered. She was found early in the morning, lying in a fence corner by a roadside, her throat cut from ear to ear, her cheeks, nose, and forehead slashed in a manner that would indicate it to be the work of a skillful butcher. Her clothing had, as in the cases of nearly all the Whitechapel murders, been thrown over her head, and the little crowd which had gathered there upon the discovery of the body were horrified to see that it had been mutilated exactly as it had been done in the London cases. If anything further had been needed to make the horror-stricken crowd attribute the crime to the Whitechapel fiend, it was found on a card pinned to the unfortunate woman's body by the blade of a small penknife. The card bore the inscription, Jack the Ripper, 14 more, then I quit. Of course, a diligent search was made for the murderer, but he was not found. On the morning of December 13th, in a field, lying by and partially concealed under an old shed, was found a second body. In this case, the woman was a notorious creature of the lowest class, a negress called Mag. Her wounds were of the same nature as those inflicted upon the other. The authorities made a hurried investigation, 
and buried the body as speedily as possible, giving no one an opportunity to examine it. No mention of the crime was made in the newspapers of the time, the, the officials endeavoring it by every means in their power to hush the matter up and have it talked about as little as possible. No trace was ever found of the murderer, and it was forgotten save by the wretched women who belonged to that class among which the unfortunates moved. The third body was found on the Friday before New Year's Day. This time the newspapers were com compelled to notice the discovery. The scene of this third murder was about midway between the places where the former discoveries had been made, and the sailors insist that the crime was in every way analogous to the others. There are comparatively few women of this class about Kingston or Spanish Town, but those who do live there are in a state of abject terror. The murderer has eluded the authorities, and sailors expect to hear of further atrocities on their return. All of which sounds fine, with only one problem. As written, this article is about 90% bull. Of the series of murders mentioned here, only the one described as a third ever actually occurred. On the morning of December 28, 1888, a farmer named Joseph Easy living just outside Spanish Town, east of Kingston, was walking to town at about 7 o'clock in the morning. Off to the right side of Old Harbor Road near the village known as McCook's Pen, Easy saw a woman lying on her back, her face and head covered. She was not moving, and when he noted blood pooled under the woman, surmised she must be dead. He had pressing business in town, but he notified three men who he saw approaching on the same road. Then he moved on, and one of these three notified the authorities of the body. Soon, Sergeant Major DaCosta, Chief Constable at Old Harbor, arrived on scene, as did Constable Elias Duncan. The body proved to be that of a black woman, probably somewhere between 25 and 30 years of age. The woman's throat had been slashed, and it was apparent she had been struck in the face. A bloody piece of wood lay beside her head. Investigating the scene further, DaCosta found wagon tracks, which seemed to have stopped at a point parallel to the body. It appeared there had been a struggle here, he later testified. Here he also discovered a few stones with spots of blood upon them a tooth, apparently knocked from the woman's mouth, and a few loose beads. Similar beads were also found next to the body. A few hours later, Joseph Easy was returning along the road from Spanish Town. The body was apparently still there, and a small crowd was gathered at the spot. This time, he discovered an earring lying in the road. He gave this to a policeman and continued. Other inhabitants of McCook's pen found other pieces of evidence in the vicinity. A man named Thomas Cadbury found another tooth, and a 12-year-old girl named Rosanna Chambers found a white hat with a black ribbon, which had blood on it. The district medical officer, Dr. William D Daly Niche, carried out an examination of the body that afternoon. The blow to her face had been strong enough that he believed it alone could have been fatal. She had apparently been beaten, likely with a board of this found at the scene. Several facial bones were fractured, and two more loose teeth were found inside the woman's mouth. The woman was apparently still alive after this rough treatment, though, since her actual cause of death was blood loss re likely resulting from a slashed throat. He estimated her time of death as between 10 p.m. and midnight the night before. At about 10 o'clock on the morning of December 29th, a man appeared at the house of William and Eliza Reed, 
where the body was being kept. When he was shown the dead woman, he replied that he didn't know her after all, but he appeared startled and rubbed his eyes as though he had a headache. The man hurriedly left, and the body, still unidentified, was photographed and buried in Old Harbor. Only a few hours after her burial, Sergeant Major DaCosta was contacted by a woman named Mary Ann Richards. She said that she had been attending a dance in Kingston on the night of December 27th, and as she left, she had seen a man and a woman driving in a cart. She identified the dead woman as the one in the wagon, and said that she referred to the man as Benji. Mary Ann Richards and a friend she was with, Louisa Armstrong, rode with the two in the wagon for a distance. The woman's name was Estina Crawford. She had previously lived in Costa Rica. Richards said she did not know the man's name beyond the name Estina had used. She and Armstrong disembarked from the wagon outside Old Harbor, at which point the wagon turned and headed back toward Kingston. This location, as well as the timing, likely shortly before midnight at this point, would seem to imply that the two women left the wagon only a few minutes before Estina Crawford met her end, presumably at the hands of Benji, whoever he actually was. What exactly led them to the doorstep of a particular person is unclear, but the next day, the police went to the home of Benjamin Ranger, a resident at Veer Racecourse, nearly 20 miles from the murder site. At first, Ranger denied responsibility in both English and Spanish, but Sergeant Major DaCosta and Constable Solon nonetheless brought him into custody. When confronted with Estina Crawford's things, however, he spoke quite freely about the murder. She had previously lived in both Costa Rica and Panama, and he said that he had lived with her for about six months. I don't know why I did it, he said. Henry Hibbert, a shopkeeper from Kingston, said that on about December 6th or 7th, he had rented rooms to Benjamin Ranger and Estina Crawford. The two were engaged to be married, he said. Since that time, though, he hadn't seen Crawford. On December 29th, Ranger returned to Hibbert's shop to retrieve some items from his rooms, but he claimed that she was sick. This was almost identical to the story told to Robert Barkley of Cocoa Falls, an uncle of Ranger's, who said that he had rented the cart to Ranger and Crawford on December 27th. On the 29th, Ranger returned the cart to his uncle, but Crawford was not with him. He told his uncle that she was sick at home in Kingston. Of course, by this time, she was dead. So the case against Benjamin Ranger was a fairly open and shut one. It had been clearly established that he rented the wagon in the company of the dead woman. Blood was found on the wagon, traces of the wagon were found at the crime scene, and people had clearly established that the dead woman was indeed the one seen with him. The only real question was exactly what the motive had been. To all appearances, their relationship was a good one, and Hibbert didn't recall any instances of domestic squabbles or fights. He did say that both of them were quite frequently drunk. Crawford probably more so than Ranger. 38 pounds which Crawford had on her person at the time of her death were missing from her body, so thievery is the only real motive that can be surmised. Benjamin Ranger was executed at the Middlesex and Surrey County Jail on February 5th, 1889. Only two days after the execution of Benjamin Ranger, a dispatch from Managua was received by several newspapers. Either Jack the Ripper of Whitechapel has emigrated from the scene of his ghastly murders, 
or he has found one or more imitators in this part of Central America. Women of the character who met their fate at the hands of the London murderer having been found murdered here just as mysteriously, and evidences point to almost identical methods. Two were found butchered out of all recognition, even their faces being horribly slashed, and in the cases of all the others, the persons were frightfully disfigured. Like Jack the Ripper's victims, they have been found in out-of-the-way places. Two of the victims were possessed of gaudy jewelry, and, and from that it is urged that the mysterious murderer has not, has not committed the crimes for robbery. In fact, in almost every detail, the crimes and characteristics are identical with the Whitechapel horrors. While the dispatches first appeared in the United States, they also eventually made their way into the British press. In these newspapers, the murder of Estina Crawford was brought up as well. It would be interesting to know whether any steamer left the Thames after November 9th, and after calling at Jamaica in December, proceeded to Central America. However, as nearly as can be determined by any of the numerous researchers who have looked into this, the depredations of the so-called Nicaragua Ripper are entirely a fabrication and a complete invention. In my opinion, at least, the stories might be directly influenced by the murder of Estina Crawford and the fact that she was once a resident in Central America, although in that case it was Costa Rica and Panama, not Nicaragua. Another story appeared in September 1893, describing how four women have been murdered and mutilated within the last four days in Osborne in the Netherlands. Typical of the other stories, it was mentioned how all were dissected in the manner practiced by Jack the Ripper. The dispatch originated in Amsterdam. Another story, also originating in Amsterdam, this one in November 1898, once more mentions how Two women were stabbed here under mysterious circumstances, and how their bodies were horribly cut and mutilated. I wasn't certain at first if these two stories were referring to the same events, as sometimes the press back in the day would reprint a story, sometimes year after year. And with the memory of the mostly invented Jamaican murders and completely invented Nicaraguan ones in mind, I first needed to discover if these events actually even happened. Through discussions with Dutch researcher Theo Peijmans, I found that the articles were, indeed, speaking of two separate events, and that both of them did actually occur. The second one, the Amsterdam 1898 case, however, was misreported and was not a murder, but seemed to be a case of, a L of London monster-style stabbings of a non-fatal variety. These types of crimes are distressingly common, a strange sort of sexual paraphilia in which the death of the woman attacked is not the goal. If it occurs at all, it's accidental. The perpetrators of these types of attacks usually stab their victims in the leg or buttocks, somewhere which is unlikely to result in any serious injury. Sometimes, victims don't even realize they've been stabbed right away. For most cases I'm familiar with, these offenders are also notoriously difficult to actually catch. The other instance, however, the murderers in Oostburg in 1893 were fairly big news in the Netherlands at the time. The events once again are made to sound a bit different than they actually were, not a series of more or less unconnected killings as it kind of implies, but it was instead the murder of an entire family. The murders actually took place in Moraliput, a tiny village north of Oostburg. In one of the cottages, there lived a 74-year-old woman named Maria Bonkard. 
as well as two of her daughters, 39-year-old Rosalia Burt and 41-year-old Melanie Burt. The family was quite a large one, since in addition to these, there were two other surviving daughters, a third had died when she was only three years old, in addition to two sons. On the evening of August 31, 1893, at what was later determined to have been probably somewhere around 8.30 p.m., all three women were slain. The bodies of Rosalia and Melanie were found in the home, with that of Maria Bonkard at a, at a distance of about 100 yards from the home. All three had been bludgeoned and their throats slashed. The front door stood open, but investigators could find no evidence of a break-in at the home. They also found some money in the home, enough to convince them that robbery was, at least, not the primary motive. It's not clear exactly how he enters the story, but by the next day, a man named Machio Lampier was arrested on suspicion of having committed the murders. It took nearly a month, but eventually Lampier confessed to the killings. As should surprise no one who at all pays attention to any true crime stories, Lampier was the husband of Rosalia Burt. But the two lived separately. They had a son, Edward, who was 19 at the time his mother died. I couldn't find much of anything about him, but he used his mother's last name rather than his father's, so presumably he didn't live with Machiel. I assume he lived on his own, since there's likewise no indication of have his having lived at the Moralaput house either. Anyway, according to Lampier, he had met a girl and they planned to marry and go to America. But as he was already married, he couldn't legally go off and get married to someone else. So he made up his mind that he needed to get his wife out of the picture. He also resolved to kill the other two women as well. He went to the house and once inside killed Rosalia and Melanie. Maria fled the house and ran into the fields nearby. Lampier chased her down and murdered her as well, after which he returned to his residence nearby. It isn't ever really stated what exactly Lampier's fate was. Presumably he was in prison for some time, but he wasn't executed as he didn't die until 1931. His planned trip to America seems never to have occurred either. Apparently, the other woman vanished when he made his confession, or never even existed in the first place, and he killed his wife for a completely different reason. The Sheffield Evening Telegraph for April 9, 1895, carried news of yet another supposed Jack the Ripper murder, this one taking place in Spain. 23-year-old Rosa, Rosa Fernandez was herding a flock of sheep near the village of Munion Samaro in northwestern Spain. She failed to return that evening, the sheep coming back to the farm without her. Her parents and brother ventured into the nearby mountains to search for her, and it was eventually her brother who stumbled across her bloodied remains on a mountain pass north of the village, near a hill known as La Sagada. Rosa had been stabbed numerous times, and her throat was slit so deeply that she was nearly beheaded. Also, a piece of the lower abdomen was missing. A few hours before Rosa was killed, an old woman living in the nearby town of Reconcos had also been attacked by some man, who had grabbed her head and who was apparently trying to slit her throat as well. In this instance, he was chased off by a neighbor. The neighbor described a man of average height, blonde, with sideburns, and wearing a hat. The same attacker was seen shortly after Rosa's body was found, and it was assumed to be the same individual. 
And on that afternoon, in the wake of the murder, the same man attacked several other women and children. Police first focused on Demetrio Sanchez Valoria, who was a native of Murielos and had a few years before murdered his sister with an axe and wounded his brother-in-law and father-in-law. Valoria answered the description of the killer, and as he had once before escaped prison after being given a life sentence, it was feared that he had perhaps done so a second time and gone on to kill again. But such was not the case. It's unclear what exactly led them to the proper suspect, but another man named Francisco Martinez was tracked down a few days later attempting to purchase a ticket to the United States. A vagrant by nature, Martinez had been a soldier in years past and had been stationed in Cuba for a time. He was arrested for robbery and discharged, and since his release he had been working as a minor. Martinez was eventually charged with two counts of attempt at rape and one of murder, and sentenced to 26 years in prison. However, he died of illness in an Oviedo hospital on January 8, 1896, having served only about seven months in prison. Of the cases I recount it here, both the Dutch murder of the Burt sisters and their mother, and this Spanish case, seem to be little documented in English. The murders of Estina Crawford and Jane Beadmore are fairly well documented, although the murder of Beadmore remains better known by far. As said, it was a popular idea at the time that Jack the Ripper had departed his East London haunts and traveled north to Gateshead, and the rumor pers persisted, although both George Baxter Phillips and Thomas Root declared it to be a fallacy. And as nearly anyone who researches murders of the Victorian era knows, these are far from the only crimes attributed, wrongly in all cases, to Jack the Ripper. I don't doubt that killer was responsible for a few more things that haven't been associated with him, but as a general rule of thumb, assume anything from another country the press said was Jack the Ripper wasn't. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and pictures will be on my Instagram. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so, until next episode, this is Andrew, signing off.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.